0: I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris.
1: It's always a pleasure, Ken.
0: A while ago now, we covered the merits of commercial property when compared to residential property. I wonder if you might quickly recap them for us.
1: Yeah, Ken, look, I do remember we did cover that, and you're right, it's probably worth recapping. And probably the main difference between commercial and residential tenants is that they stay for a longer period. As you'd know, as being a residential landlord, your leases are generally six, maybe 12 months if you're lucky, but they sort of average around about nine months. Whereas for commercial tenancies they're generally three to five years, and if it's a larger property, even longer. And the fact is that you can, for the same money that you would pay for an apartment, you can get a small office suite, and therefore, in having a longer lease, it gives you a great deal more security as far as the predictability of your income is concerned. Plus, you don't have that continual turnover where, while you might have a bond Quite often you find it doesn't quite cover all the remedial work you have to do. I mean, sure, the steam cleaning and so forth might be covered, but there might be some other things that you find that the tenant has done to cause some sort of damage to the property, and it, it can't always be covered by the bond. But there's just the inconvenience and annoyance of having that continual turnover of tenants that a commercial property affords you that greater period in the length of the lease. The other thing is you have probably greater control because with a residential tenancy, if partway through the lease one tenant wants to leave, all they've got to do is find a substitute tenant, provided they've got you know decent credentials, they swap them over, the previous one leaves, and then the new party takes over. Whereas with a commercial lease... You have some, or have considerable rights. Firstly, they have to seek your permission in writing to assign the lease. But more importantly, if they go part way through it, say a three-year lease, they go halfway through. The outgoing tenant remains responsible also for the performance of the lease to the end of that initial period so for the next 18 months you actually have two parties on the hook you have the new occupant who is principally responsible for the payment of the rent but should they default you actually have legal access to the outgoing tenant and so it means that you have that added security which is enforceable by law and because the tenant's as i said a commercial running a business they need to under the contract the leasing contract seek your written approval and agreement and have to convince you that they the incoming tenant replacement tenant is of equal financial caliber and the other thing is that because they're running a business the rent becomes a regular reoccurring expense and and as such You can generally set them up so it's a direct bank transfer, so it happens on the first of the month or whatever the agreed payment date is. Whereas the residential tenants, yes, they've got to pay their rent, but it's not like a a business. And sometimes the rent gets overlooked or they might have overspent that month so it gets delayed. And rent is not necessarily seen as, a, unfortunately, a prime cost, for residential whereas with a business they realize that without the premises they operate in they can't run their business so it just adds a more commercial aspect to the um the rental payment process furthermore with residential property you might get a 5% gross yield but by the time you take off your rates and your water ra- rates and insurance and land tax and and things like that you're lucky if you end up with a 3 3.5% net yield. But with commercial property, the leases are structured so that the tenant will pay those outgoings, including things like body corporate, as well as the rates insurance and so forth. So, therefore, you'll end up with a, a net yield, depending on, you know, if it's retail, it might be a 5% net yield. If it's industrial, it could be a 9%. But let's say a, a 7 to... net yield, compared to a 3 to 3.5% net yield. So, as I said, for the same sort of money to buy it, you can end up with a much better return. And, you know, that also has the added benefits that with commercial property, your depreciation benefits are far greater than for residential property. Even if you have a, a strata title office, you get to depreciate your share of the lift, the security system, all that sort of infrastructure. And so not only do you get a a higher net return, you're able to claim far more by way of depreciation allowances. And even if you, you decide to neutrally gear the property as opposed to negatively gear, for tax purposes you will have it negatively geared. So depreciation is a non-cash deductible outgoing. So you don't actually incur it as an outgoing, as you might with other expenses, but it allows you to shield a significant portion of your rent for tax purposes. Plus, as I said, not only do they pay the outgoing, but the tenants maintain the property. Now, depending on whether it's part of a larger building sometimes the tenants may speak to the managing agent and have them organize the repairs that might be necessary but they under the lease will be responsible for those but also in the general upkeep and presentation of the office it's in the tenant's best interest to keep it looking good because that's their showcase to the public so to speak and and therefore, if something needs painting, they'll paint it. You know, if the toilet blocks, well, unlike a, a tenant who can ring up and get it fixed, and even on the weekend can call their own plumber uh, if the agent can't be contacted and get it fixed, that's something the commercial tenant is responsible to either arrange a plumber themselves or call the managing agent and have the their managing agent. Fix it, but it's unlikely to happen on the weekend because most commercial premises aren't occupied on the weekend. So, there are you know, a large number of variances, all of which would lead to a, a more simplified landlord tenant relationship
0: and certainly reducing the angst as far as you're concerned. While a higher net yield is clearly attractive, what else should investors be mindful of?
1: Yeah, there are a, f- a few things that should be considered. And look, location is important. And when you talk about location, sometimes people only focus on the, the high visibility location and position in, in, within, on a street or you know, a corner location. but Sometimes location has got more to do with the proximity to other commercial properties of a similar nature. In other words, you might have a a corner position office building, but it's surrounded by somewhat derelict industrial warehouses in a sort of inner middle suburb. Now, that is not necessarily conducive to a good long-term investment Unless, of course, progressively, though it's anticipated that those warehouses will be renovated and converted into offices themselves. Office people like to congregate where other offices are, and that's partly you know, birds flocking together, as it were, but it's also when you're setting up an office, you anticipate rightly or wrongly that if you go to the right spot you may well get flow-on business from other offices in the neighbouring area. Now, I know a lot of CBD locations, some of the prime buildings are occupied by lawyers, accountants, financiers, etc., large corporations, but you'll find in the nearby streets and the smaller buildings, you find a lot of supplementary businesses that provide ancillary services to those larger firms, and they tend to like to congregate nearby to what are their, or or become their, significant or major clients. And so the best place to buy an office is in an office precinct, even if it is in a suburban location as opposed to a CBD location. But also you've got to consider things like the physical layout. I mean, the building might be brand new and, and it's for that reason that the tenant or tenants have gone in there, but you've got to look a little further down the track. If, if the, the presentation of the foyer is appealing because it's new, but if you look at the layout and particularly if you've got upper floors, if you've got a whole floor tenant, is that if they leave, easy to subdivide into one, into two or more tenancies? Or are you going to be left with extensive passageways so that you can get access to escape stairs and things like that? So it's the positioning of the lift, the toilets, the escape stairs that will determine its letability in the third or fourth tenancy that goes in there, which could well be 10, 12 years down the track. So, yeah, net yield's important, but there are a host of other things that you need to also consider.
0: So, what type of commercial property should smaller investors be looking to purchase?
1: I've talked a bit about commercial offices, and and yes, strata offices, in my view, would be what I would focus on. In order of appeal, I think it's offices, industrial and then retail. And I I think retail, in my view, is still a distant third because, in my view, retailers have had a continuous sale since the global financial crisis. It used to be Christmas, Easter, Boxing Day maybe, you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day, those sort of promotions. Now it is all year round. There's there's almost continual thirty to fifty percent sales sign in all the windows. Now the retailers in my view are struggling. Whereas offices and warehousing seem to be pretty solid at the moment. Sure it varies between states, I mean Perth and and Brisbane are suffering as far as offices are concerned, whereas and so is Adelaide and Canberra, whereas Melbourne and Sydney uh, have come out of the the a slight downturn where the market flattened out and are starting to become pretty appealing again. So I would say strata offices for the smaller investor, I mean if you're able to get up around the sort of one and a half two million or more, Yes, you can look to buy your own standalone offices, but most people will be looking at strata offices or a business park where you get something that has an office-warehouse combination. And I'm talking not a token office, I'm talking somewhere like at least 40% offices, 60% warehouse, where it could well be the head office for a retailer in, the, in that has a lot of inner city or... CVD locations and they carry what they call as top-up stock in the inner suburban warehouse behind their, their head office where they can, if there's a run on any particular one of their outlets, they can quickly top it up. Their main warehouse being further out in the outer suburbs of a capital city. So it's strata office if it's just offices, or an office warehouse component. And that's what I would feel would be your best choice.
0: And how important is your tenant?
1: Well, your tenant is paramount. I mean, you've got to look upon your tenant as your partner. Because effectively, your tenant is paying your mortgage. I mean, yes, they pay rent and they pay outgoings, but effectively... That's what's keeping you afloat as far as your mortgage payments are concerned. And that's why it's important to have a a good managing agent who considers or looks upon each property as though it were their own because they need to have, on your behalf, a good working relationship with the tenant. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to favour the tenant, but they need to understand that the tenants aren't and, annoyance. and I've seen managing agents who, you know, when the tenant rings, they're told so-and-so's on the line, they just roll their eyes. Look, some tenants can be difficult, but if you treat them well, most tenants are pretty responsive. And, you know, it's important to understand that it also comes down to tradespeople too, because, you see, To keep the tenant happy, you need to have a quick response by the tradesperson. The tradesperson will respond to your needs as a, a landlord or a managing agent only if that tradesperson is paid promptly. And again, I've seen managing agents who just say, oh, look, the tradesman, they can wait. That's not good enough. The tradesperson, if they do the job, needs to be paid in a timely manner. And I, I mean, if it's a 14-day settlement, that's what you pay Or 30 days. You don't let it run on for two or three months where they've got to make a couple of calls to get paid. Because if you pay them on time, and probably even ahead of time, and that assumes the money is there, but if, if, the, tenants, if the rent isn't there by the tenant, you as the landlord need to provide the agent with the funds necessary on an interim basis to, to pay for the contractor to do the work. The lease might provide that the tenant pays and ultimately they will. It'll be added to their next bill and they'll reimburse you. But the important thing is the tradesman gets paid because then if there is a genuine emergency and he's been paid or she's been paid promptly, they will respond and help out you and your managing agent to resolve the particular emergency with the tenant. Then the tenant's happy And and it's all important because it's no good just fussing over the tenant in the last few months before a lease renewal or a rental review. tenant's not stupid. If your relationship, and it starts the moment you take ownership or the new lease begins, you have to build and maintain that relationship with your tenant.
0: It's paramount. And what safeguards are needed when buying a property with an existing tenant?
1: Well... Let's step back. When you put a tenant in, you are entitled to and can carry out significant investigations and credit checks and so forth. When you inherit a tenant upon buying a property, you would like to think that you can assume that the previous landlord, the vendor, has carried out those sort of checks. Because under the current privacy laws, there's a limit to what you can do as a an incoming new owner. Now, sure, you can carry out a, a commercial credit check and this is something that your lawyer should do on your behalf as a matter of course. But unless the tenants are in default of a loan or have had a court judgment against them, this is probably won't provide you with a lot of very useful information. And what I find your best guide is is probably to inquire of the selling agent as to the timeliness of the tenant's payments over the last six months as to establish whether or not they are or have been in arrears. Now, the managing agent is obliged to tell you that. They can't, and let's assume the selling agent is the managing agent, they may not be, in which case you can then inquire of the, the managing agent and if they're half smart and they would like to continue managing the property, they'll, they'll be forthcoming and, and assist you and whatever you need. It may be that there is no problem. They have paid regularly and you may be able to obtain copies of the past rental statements. Again, privacy issues come into play here but the agent can certainly advise you whether or not there has been a problem. Having said that, I find the best comfort you can take is generally provided by ensuring an appropriate rental guarantee has been included as part of the existing lease terms and conditions. Now, as a guide, you would expect a bank guarantee for three to four months of rental, outgoings and GST for a three-year lease. For a five-year lease, I would have thought five to six months rental and outgoings and GST would be appropriate. And if you've got an eight to ten-year lease, probably around 12 months bank guarantee for rent, outgoings and GST. You see, nowadays personal guarantees are useless because... Most of the directors will not be holding assets in their own names. They're either in other entities or in their wives' names or whatever. Plus, personal guarantees, they're pretty hard and costly to enforce through legal action. It gets pretty messy. And what I'm finding is that even if the, the tenant may only be have been in existence for a couple of years, it may be, a, when I say a startup. A couple of people have left a a large firm, it might be a legal accounting or whatever, and decided to go out by themselves. And it might not even have been the same discipline they're in. But they have probably for the past four or five years been earning some very good money, put aside a number of assets, and they may have a beach house or something like that, which is providing the security for the bank guarantee. And all you want is that security. The fact that they don't have any history is irrelevant because if you have a you know, six-month bank guarantee and the tenant defaults, you've got coverage for the default. You can then go out and find a new tenant, pay for the advertising, pay for the letting fees, and probably even have some funds left over to cover a rent-free period that you can offer the incoming tenant. Now, the beauty with a bank guarantee, unlike a bond, is that you are in full control. Now, I suggest either your agent can hold it or maybe your solicitor, but they're made out in your favour, the bank guarantees as the landlord, and it's triggered by the fact that the, the tenant is in breach of their lease and causing you financial problems. And you can literally walk into the bank and present it and they are obliged, without question, to pay the money across to you. Now, you have to have a legitimate reason to do it. You can't just capriciously call up the bank guarantee. And if, in fact, at the end of the day, having met all your costs and you do need to do what's called mitigate your loss, you can't simply sit around and leave the premises vacant and expect a claim under the bank guarantee. But if you do everything right, you claim all the the out-of-pocket expenses in finding a replacement tenant to put you, in legal terms, in the same position as you were before the default. If you've done all that and this money over, that then needs to be returned to the tenant. But the outgoing tenant. But What I'm saying is that the bank guarantee gives you a lot of comfort and allows you time and the funds to find that replacement tenant.
0: You mentioned location earlier. Should investors stay within the metropolitan areas around our capital cities or are some of the regional areas now starting to look attractive? Traditionally
1: in and around the metropolitan areas is where you're going to get your greatest growth. But you are seeing some of these regional centres like uh, Parramatta and Newcastle and New South Wales and Geelong in and around Melbourne and where a lot of people are moving to because of the cost of housing is so great in the metropolitan areas. And it's a lifestyle change. It's not necessarily a sea change. But it's more where you can feel part of a perhaps a tighter community and where the commute now is almost as long as from some of the outer suburbs in the metropolitan areas so there's a lot of activity going on now in some of the regional areas and you've got to, that's why I'm named a few by way of example where the you've reached a tipping point. And you see, some people go to these regional areas that may not be my first choice and say, well, look, I can get a return of... income return of 95 nearly 10%. Now, what you need to realise is, and I think in a couple of the earlier podcasts we talked about, for commercial property, your overall return income and capital growth combined, is generally about 12% per annum. And that's over the long term. There are going to be ups and downs depending on the economy. But over the long long period, long term, it's about 12%. So if you're getting a 10% income yield, that means you're really only getting a 2% capital growth. So the reason you are able to achieve a 10% income yield is you need compensation for the lower capital growth. Now, in, traditionally in these regional areas, that's been the case. But with, as I said, Geelong, Parramatta, Newcastle, and, and, and there are more added each, each year, where they are going through a significant transition and becoming more and more popular. So as the infrastructure starts to grow, the population starts to grow, State and federal governments are decanting whole departments to these areas to help them grow, as I said offices and support services spin off, and there's an opportunity for commercial landlords to make strategic purchases where they might still get slightly higher yield you know if if it was seven to seven and a half percent net yield in the Metropolitan areas around the capital cities it might be um, eight to eight and a half percent initially, but as things grow, the yield will drop because the demand increases, so the yield will come back closer to a metropolitan yield and so it again it's a matter of getting advice, having the right consultants, identifying trends, and therefore taking a strategic advantage. So the opportunities are certainly there in the regional centres. You just have to make sure you choose the right regional centre and then the right property, both as to type and location within that regional centre.
0: I realise we may have covered a a number of these issues during several earlier podcasts, but I, I always think it's useful to revisit them every now and then.
1: Look, again, even seasoned players need reminding of the basics from time to time because that's what helps to build and preserve their ongoing success.
0: (laughs) Yes, I agree. And I look forward to catching up with you again next time.